All right, all right. Welcome to the Cabot Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk, shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. The Cavus Ships Podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is a trusted defense and technologies partner supporting all services in all domains and America's only builder of nuclear-powered aircraft carriers. HII delivering the advantage. Coming up, Brian Clark of the Hudson Institute joins us to discuss his recent report on using unmanned forces to hedge against emerging challenges and threats. But first, a look at Naval News this week. The aircraft carrier USS Carl Vinson returned to San Diego February 23rd, just over four months since beginning a Western Pacific deployment on October 12th. It's thought the unusually short deployment with Carrier Air Wing 2 is a move to keep adversaries off balance. The cruiser Princeton and destroyer Sterrett of the Vincent Group also returned to San Diego, but on February 21st ahead of the carrier. The Pacific-based carrier USS Theodore Roosevelt remains deployed in the Western Pacific, while the Atlantic-based carrier USS Dwight D. Eisenhower remains on station in the Red Sea region. The cruiser USS Chosen returned to San Diego on February 16th, the first time since 2017 the ship has been underway on her own power. Chosen was one of seven cruisers inducted into the U.S. Navy Cruiser Phased Modernization Program, and the ship spent six years under refit and modernization at Vigor Shipyard in Seattle, Washington. The Chosen will apparently become only the second of the seven to re-enter service, following last year's re-delivery of the Gettysburg from BAE Systems Norfolk. Two cruisers in the program, Way City and Anzio, were decommissioned and stricken for disposal, while work on two more, the Calpins and Vicksburg, appears to have stopped short of completion. The future of the seventh ship, Cape St. George, also remains in doubt. In new ship news, the new Virginia-class attack submarine Massachusetts, SSN 798, was launched February 17th at Newport News Shipbuilding. Massachusetts is the 25th Virginia-class sub and will become the 12th of the class delivered from the Virginia shipyard. And the expeditionary sea-based ship USS John L. Canley was commissioned February 17th in a ceremony at San Diego's North Island Naval Air Station. And that's just a brief look at some of this week's naval news. Moving to the discussion portion of the podcast, we are joined by friend of the pod, Brian Clark. Brian and his partner, Dan Pat, both senior fellows from the Hudson Institute, put out their latest report this week, Hedging Bets, Rethinking Force Design for a Post-Dominance Era. Brian, first of all, thank you for joining us this week. Um, and now let's jump right in. Can you give us an overview of the report, what do you mean when you say hedging bets? And what do you mean when you say, um, you know, rethinking uh, the design in a post-dominance era? What should people kind of take away from the work that you and Dan have done? Yeah, thanks, Chris uh, and Chris for, for having me on. Um, you know, so what we're trying to do with this report 
is try to provide some of the strategic and conceptual underpinnings to ideas like the Replicator Initiative are trying to pursue of how could you use unmanned systems to change up our approach to warfighting to enable us to maybe be more effective at deterring aggression um, and get beyond just using unmanned systems as kind of extensions of the manned platform. So how do you break that existing paradigm and do a better job of deterring in particular China? Um, and, and one of the things that really came out of the, the work that we've been doing, some of it with PAC fleet and some of it with the Navy um, it, over the last year was China-Taiwan is really driving the overall defense budget and driving the budget of the Navy substantially. So if you have something that is not relevant to the China-Taiwan invasion, it's always on the chopping block. You know, we've seen that with amphibious ships. We've seen that with even strike fighters to a degree. Uh, and we've certainly seen it with um, some of the Navy's decisions on um, uh, some of the capabilities that they're pursuing in the unmanned realm. So everything has to be viewed through this China-Taiwan lens. Um, and as a result, you're seeing that the Navy is now less able to deal with the other situations it faces. So uh, we're seeing that it's less able to deal with the, the demands posed by the Houthis uh, in the Middle East because we don't have the destroyer capacity. We don't have any frigates. We don't have any um, of the kind of air defense ships that we might have had in the past. Um, we are not dealing well with uh, the, the challenge posed by China in the gray zone because we've got a, a shrinking number of LCSs because they're not relevant to China-Taiwan. So, you know, we, we've been retiring them early. Um, and we don't have the amphibs to go do things like earthquake relief in, in uh, Turkey uh, or to do uh, NEOs, uh, non-combatant evacuation operations uh, in Sudan. So there's a bunch of operations that we either have left on the table and not been able to pursue uh, or we, we've been short on and we're running running short on now um, because of the capacity limitations of the fleet. And a lot of that's driven by the fact that we've got to focus on being able to defeat the China-Taiwan invasion. So what we looked at here is, is there another approach to do it, dealing with the China-Taiwan invasion that helps us hedge against that possibility and lets us keep the fleet um, more flexible, more versatile, uh, you know, as, as we move into the future, because this will just get worse, right? If we don't try and do something different about China-Taiwan, we're going to continue to boil the Navy down to, you know, a, num a small number of submarines and destroyers that do long-range uh, strikes and then carriers that do long-range strikes with, uh, with aircraft. And basically the amphibious fleet, the small combatant fleet are all going to continue to suffer. Um, so, so the approach we looked at was uh, something that you know Admiral Paparo has talked about: this idea of a hellscape, um, where can we use unmanned systems to increase the risk for China of a successful invasion of Taiwan, um, and then also make it so that our manned forces uh, survive longer um, and protract the campaign a little bit longer, um, and uh, are able to be more effective. And so, what we did here is we proposed a, a set of unmanned systems uh, that would be based in uh, either in Taiwan or in the adjacent islands of Japan or the Philippines. These unmanned systems would be used to slow down and disrupt an invasion, um, and as a result, um, the the Chinese would have more risk. Uh, we would also be able to keep some of our manned forces farther away um, and therefore reduce the risk to them. And we did a simulation to evaluate that possibility of just how our loss is affected by this. And then the last thing that happens is when you introduce this unmanned force, it creates a lot better targeting opportunities for our manned forces. So when we um, need to be able to do these long range missile engagements, we got to have cooperating targets. We have to have targets that are willing to emit, that are willing to make themselves more visible so that we can hit them with uh, long range uh, anti-ship missiles or, or maritime strike tomahawks. So if you put these unmanned systems out there to fight off the invasion, 
the, the Chinese will have to activate radars, they'll have to activate air defense systems, they'll have to respond. Uh, and as a result, they're gonna make themselves better targets. So all those things combined together to make a more effective defense against uh, the Chinese Taiwan invasion, while not having to redesign the fleet to optimize for that scenario. So when I read the report um, and, and when I listened to you explain it, makes good sense, makes perfect sense, right? I follow it uh, linearly. And then I hear Navy leadership talk about the um, integration of manned and unmanned forces. Right. <laughs> and I say, boy, there is a disconnect with how they talk about it and how you and other smart folks write about it. Can the Navy get there? I mean, get you know, and and how does the Navy get to what you and others, um, and and right. including Admiral Paparo, are are envisioning? It seems like the yeah. DC Navy has a long way to go before we get to something like this. Yeah, so I think you're you're absolutely right. So you've got kind of three different models for unmanned system use. You've got the Preparo, you know, uh, us, you know, hedge force, it's all unmanned stuff, or it's almost all unmanned stuff, and they do their own thing, and they're in their own area, and it, we kind of create a kill box, and, and they operate there. Um, and the second model is kind of the loyal wingman model, where you're going to be hanging around with your unmanned vehicle, like the large unmanned surface vessel, right? So now I'm, I'm, you know, married to this thing, and I'm going to have to carry it around with me. And then you've got the kind of unmanned, manned unmanned teaming models, where you've got one manned platform with a bunch of unmanned stuff, you know, and I think the Navy is sort of you know, focused on the kind of loyal wingman model a lot, especially in the surface fleet, where the, the large unmanned surface vessel is supposed to be an adjunct magazine for the destroyers, which means now you're kind of constrained the destroyer to whatever the large unmanned surface vessel can do in terms of speed and maneuverability and endurance and reliability, all those things. It seems like a bad model. And the Air Force is already realizing that that loyal wingman model has a lot of limitations and they're moving away from it. So if you look at some of the CCA work that they're doing most recently, it's more about like man-on-man -man teaming where they got one manned platform and a bunch of unmanned stuff that's being operated at its behest to go do sensing or counter-sensing or, or weapons attacks. Um, so the Navy, I think, is going to have to move more towards that man-on-man -man teaming model for a lot of their operations, for like anti-submarine warfare, for like air defense, where I'm using the unmanned systems to kind of uh, expand or, or augment the capacity of my manned platforms to sense and to respond and create more complexity for an opponent rather than just being an adjunct magazine or just more capacity you know, adjacent to my platform. But I think the more important idea is to use this, use unmanned systems in these hedge forces because it gives you the ability to kind of bypass the whole integration uh, effort that ends up consuming a lot of time and effort of how do I get these unmanned systems, you know, kind of built into the rest of the fleet, you know? So the loyal wingman models kind of requires me to bring my unmanned system into my manned squadron. You know, I've now I've got to have a whole, you know, uh, uh, sustainment, sustainment effort for them. I've got to figure out how I'm going to work with them. How do I prevent, you know, them from running into me? How do I make sure that we can manage them in, in combat? Um, that whole integration effort is an enormous level of effort. And that's why the Air Force is starting to realize it's maybe not the best way to go. The other effort of where you really disconnect or decouple demand and unmanned offers a lot more promise and a lot faster time to fielding because I'm not having to integrate the manned and unmanned nearly as much. I just have to be able to communicate with them. Um, and then this hedge force is probably the most decoupled where this hedge force exists more or less on its own. And it's going to be operated by a small number of manned people or manned people, <laughs> humans that will then operate them at, a, at some kind of distance. Um, and then they're maintained by that set of operators as well. But this allows you to field them right away and not have to integrate them with the rest of the force and allows you to kind of evolve 
that force as well. So it's it's not a vanguard force per se because it's actually got an operational purpose, but it does give you that kind of vanguard force ability to quickly evolve the systems uh, and the operating concepts. And I think that's something that Admiral Paparo and others out in PAC fleet see as being a value here is we can you know go out and put a bunch of these unmanned systems in the field, test them out, assess what works and doesn't work, change it up and give the Chinese a lot of new looks to worry about. So, uh, Brian, how does the Navy get there from here? Uh, I gave a talk at SNA this year um, that was sort of got a mixed reaction from people saying you're absolutely right to people just curling their lip because they, because <laughs> it wasn't all happy. And yeah. the idea is that there's a lot of activity on man. There's endless talk. I mean, everybody wants to talk about it. Um, right. How do you actually do it? The unmanned division went out to Japan and Australia. Right. Fantastic mm -hmm. deployment. Um, it's definitely taken a toll. So two of the boats came home. Uh, they're up at Port Winnemi. Um, The other two, the, the one that uh, would come into San Diego, the last I heard, are still at Pearl Harbor. Everybody's really beaten up. Um, of course, they're not designed for transoceanic passages. But as a demonstration, it certainly yeah. spoke a lot. Um, very well done. On the other hand, there's all these efforts, but they're not coordinated. Right. Fifth Fleet has this, you know, essentially ISR contract operated effort with a hundred or so platforms, multiple companies, multiple contractors, multiple countries. Um, that's one effort. Fourth Fleet has this sort of combination of that right. plus more operational and more scientific development also mm -hmm. as well. So a lot of a lot of uh uh, individual organizations, uh, universities, labs, and things send things down there to play. And that's been largely based off an EPF, uh, high-speed fast transport. Uh, the third fleet has had its own model, which is essentially the the, uh, the squadron that went out to 7th Fleet. Right. They got out to 7th Fleet. 7th Fleet hasn't played with this at all. It's news to them. They know what they've read. Um, what do you do with this stuff? Hi, welcome to our, to our house. What are we supposed to do with you? Um, there was a certain amount yeah. of and that was part of the feedback got you know back channel to me was um people weren't up to speed on what what was going on right. here and these are very different disparate efforts right. there's no center um it's been balkanized uh everybody you know grabs a piece of it wants it for them and makes some argument why it should be in my house and not yours or anybody else's for that matter um and no there's no godfather of unmanned Right. There's no right. there's no center. Nobody's driving the development. The medium USV is a mess. The large USV is not happening anytime soon. Um, the boats that they have are damaged and need in great need of repair. There's nothing coming behind them. There's one mm -hmm. boat about just being delivered. Right. There's also one one boat just put up for auction. So net gain there. Um, what's happening? And who's driving? I mean, how can the Navy get anywhere? They talk, 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 but this action is all balkanized. There's no center. Right. And every right. time we've seen this in the past, and some of us have been around a little too long and have seen this sort of scenario before, here's a tip. It never works. You can talk all you want, and there's a lot of talk for a while. We're all excited about this. I, I you know, If you want to know what's happening, I urge you to take a look. Fine. But then nothing happens and it all dies for whatever reason. Well, it was a bad idea. And there's no center. 
So uh, that, that, that's my real question is that I, I think what you're talking about is really interesting. Um, it, it is, I, I think they need to do it. Um, but again, how do you, you, how do you, what's the construct that you would right. Right. For, to get yeah. there from here? Right. Yeah. And we looked at this a lot because this was a follow on to this Navy, the study we did last year for the Navy on unmanned systems. Um, so, uh, and we looked there at the organizational construct, you need to field unmanned systems in the Navy more quickly. And so we kind of found in that study and we found here as well is you need to, we need to embrace that heterogeneity, if you will. We need to embrace that balkanization. Uh, and this is how I would say it is you've got just like in fifth fleet, fourth fleet, third fleet, and then, you know, now pack fleet, um, with the kind of the hellscape idea they want to pursue that's in the integrated battle problems. Um, the, uh, each of those have different, you know, theaters have different needs. Um, the opportunities are different. Uh, the partners and allies are different. Um, so when it comes to vehicles, like the smaller systems, you know, like you see, particularly in Fifth Fleet and Fourth Fleet, um, you know, those systems are probably going to be unique to those theaters because the, the these smaller vehicles like the sail drones and the the Triton, uh, Ocean Arrow Triton and the Blue Bottles and the LTSs, um, all these small vehicles are, are going to be short range systems that don't necessarily have transoceanic capacity. So why not just, you know, bes design bespoke uh, support fleets or hedge forces for each of those four fleets um, that are more designed to address the challenges posed in those theaters. Um, and that's what we're advocating here. So the Navy can burn down its risk in, you know, CENTCOM, for example, by maybe fielding unmanned systems there that it could do some of the, you know, the work that needs to be done that otherwise we would have to use a multi-mission combatant to go do. In Pacific Fleet, we could use this to burn down the risk of a China-Taiwan invasion and hedge against that possibility. Um, you know, and in Fourth Fleet, obviously, this is a way to help address the demands posed by you know, drug smugglers and traffickers that we used to have to meet with uh, submarines because uh, I had guys um, out of my nuke school class deployed to you know Southcom on submarines to do this, uh, and we've used multi-mission combatants. We use EPFs today, so that's a way to burn down the risk associated with that that uh, trafficking uh, threat. But then when it comes to the platforms, if you will, like the MUSVs, the LUSVs, the extra large EVs, these larger unmanned vehicles, to your point, they need to be centralized. There needs to be a better mechanism for fielding them and experimenting with them that's managed by you know, some organization that's responsible for it. So we argued in our report that POUSC needs to be PEO for unmanned systems, not just you know for small combatants and unmanned. Uh, and they need to take a role in experimentation and demonstrations. They don't, they're not just the acquisition arm. They need to be actively involved in the development of these systems and their experimentation. But that's for the vehicles, or rather the uh, platform side, the larger vehicles. Um, I think these smaller vehicles, you know, the Navy should be helping to uh, let the combatant commanders or the fleet commanders field uh, the force that's appropriate to their regions, um, kind of like you see happening in each of the fleets now. So it's, you know, we, I, I squawked a little bit about um, Replicator two weeks ago, um, where I, you know, sort of said, hey, look, there, there are some Im imperfections to Replicator, but if you're waiting to have all the answers, we're never going to make the leap forward right. that we're talking about. And, and this is good enough and, you know, let, let's go for it. But I mean, if you're a, if you're an acquisition purist, th this is a little bit of a nightmare, right? I mean, if you're- oh, yeah. like, when you look at like okay the the current relationship between the, the you, you know the requirements folks in DC the man training equipped folks at the TICOM right. and then the operational folks at the at the COCOM now you're talking about perhaps like building a, a different force of things right. in in one and you know how, right. 
is the community of acquisition professionals nimble enough to make this happen? Uh, not not to get too far in the weeds, yeah. but that's no, immediately no, yeah. where my Pentagon right. brain went. Yeah, absolutely. So I think they are, in generally, they're not. And so what I think you're seeing is that with DIU embedding itself into the COCOMs um, and essentially then with the component commanders, you're going to have DIU building an acquisition organization inside each of the COCOMs that are dealing with what I would call these vehicle size or the, the smaller unmanned systems that are maybe more bespoke to a particular region or the composition of them is going to be more specialized, um, like the hedge force we argue for the, for the Taiwan invasion. Um, so what DIU is doing is they're going to go out there and they're going to work with the combat commander and come up with a family of systems that make sense for the challenges they have in that region, just like Task Force 59 did in the in CENTCOM and just like you know Southcom or NAF South now is doing in the Fourth Fleet. Um, but you're right that now that creates you have these specialized forces in each of these regions of unmanned systems that operate you know that are separate from the rest of the the world of acquisition. Um, and what DIU's answer that is, well, we're going to you know, do the sustainment of this through contractors. We're going to integrate them with other contractors. And we're basically going to hire vendors to do the, the integration, sustainment, and, and everything but the operation, because that'll still be government operators, um, to operate these systems in, in, in each of these theaters. And that's how we create these specialized forces that are needed to address the particular threats posed in each of these regions. Um, I think in a lot of ways, that's the right answer, because right now we you can't afford to have a one size fits all Navy that's able to address all the challenges that's posed to it at the level that they're posed. Right. So like we can't have um, the entire Navy can't be capable of countering China inside the uh, you know Taiwan Strait during a Taiwan invasion. But that's the that's sort of the implication of the way that we've been building the budget is well if it's not relevant to China Taiwan invasion then it's off the table or it's we, it's it's expendable we we can we we can you know negotiate whether we keep it or not, um, but that sort of implies you're going to have a one size fits all navy focused at that very high end threat. But that Navy is not big enough um, and is too expensive to operate for all the day-to-day -day missions like you see in the Middle East today in the Red Sea. Um, so so you got to have some way to specialize the force to deal with these threats and burn down the risk and allows the rest of the Navy to be more multi-purpose, multi multifunctional, and maybe not geared towards that you know kind of highest end threat. We I'll ask one more question and I'll throw it back to Chris. We, we keep we've used LCS on this uh, program as the what not to do, right? I mean, when I think of multi-purpose, multi-capable, right. tailorable, I, I think of the debacles that went with right. the LCS mission module. And I mean, is that a bad example to look at, or can you look at that and learn from it, or is it apples and bowling balls at this point? I mean, I think what we can learn from it is that um, when you know, if you have a multi-mission warship, it's going to be you know relatively expensive and relatively you know capable, um, and you can't really. There's no way to get that on the cheap. Um, and if you want to build something that's less uh, expensive, uh, then you probably are going to be focused. You have to fo focus it on a narrow set of missions, and you can't, get, can't allow it to be able to be all things to all people. So I think LCS now is showing how valuable it is. Um, as a small combatant in the South China Sea. 
Um, but it's focused on that narrow, narrow set of missions of essentially maritime security and surface warfare to a limited degree. Um, you know, it's not going to do the ASW and, and necessarily the mine warfare missions that it was originally intended to do. So I think, you know, it kind of shows there's no free lunch. So either you're going to have a highly capable multi-mission warship that's maybe, you know, even focused on that highest end uh, threat environment, you know, or you're going to have to have things that are more specialized. Um, and then that gets you to, you know, unmanned systems, you know, can be specialized in that way. Um, and that's where you get to these less expensive vehicles that might be deployed in particular regions. And then you're going to have more expensive platforms that are, you know, if they're manned, they're going to be really expensive. Uh, and if they're multi-purpose unmanned, they're going to be relatively expensive. So you see with MUSV, LUSV, XLUUV, that's the, the challenge they run into there is that those, those are multi-purpose unmanned vehicles or unmanned systems. Uh, and they get into the, you know, tens of millions of dollar range. I did... Um... Noticed, you know, obviously during the uh, deployment of the unmanned service squadron to Westpac, uh, USS Oakland, LCS-24, mm -hmm. essentially operated as a mothership. And, you know, kids, they were designed to do that. They were, you know, LCSs were designed to support multiple unmanned air aircraft, air aircraft, vessels, and underwater mm -hmm. vessels. And finally, kind of being used for actually what it's supposed to do. That's right. not a bad use. They're also, I mean, I don't think that anybody said this out loud, but but my understanding uh, is they're done with the LCS decommissionings. There, yes. are, there, there are no more coming. They're, they're going to use the fleet that they have. Uh, four of them are probably going to be uh, sold to Greece. Um, but by and large, by and large, they are going to use the ships that are that they're in service now. Um, right. The ones that aren't working, they'll they'll fix. Um, so they're going to be around. There is a, they already have a de facto unmanned vessel tender. Um, but one thing I want to ask you is, uh, as you look around foreign ideas, you know, this unmanned systems, you know, the U.S. has no claim on any of this stuff um, at all. Obviously, we're seeing all kinds of things happening uh, throughout the Ukraine war. Uh, Ukraine has made great use of a multiplicity of systems. Russia is making great use of multiplicity of systems, including from Iran and Korea. Right. Um, and, and and effective. Um, the Houthis are using systems right. largely from uh, Iran, but also China. And, you know, uh, it is definitely having an effect. You can't you cannot argue that. Um, I'm all often struck when I go overseas and I go to defense and uh, defense shows. Um, a lot of the ideas that come from the French are really interesting. A lot of the ideas that that, that always strikes me as interesting. Uh, Sweden, Saab, um, and uh, Cockums and uh, Hanwha. The mm -hmm. uh, yep. The uh, Koreans have quite a number of really interesting, innovative platforms and you know for right. korea, korea is essentially in a state of war always always yeah. in a state of war this is very serious for them and they don't fool around with things that aren't going anywhere but they have some pretty interesting systems do you see anything there that maybe we should be buying we don't have to develop everything ourselves right. we don't have to right. put everything into all this stuff although it's you know it's more money in somebody's pocket 
But so, so a couple of things on this. So one I would say is a lot of these smaller unmanned systems, the vehicles you know, I'm talking about um, are being developed with private money. So the DOD should avail itself of the fact that people in the VC world are willing to burn money going to develop unmanned systems. So uh, things like what Andrew is doing, both with Australia and, and the US, a lot of that's because they've been just using their own money. Uh, from VCs to do it, um, you know, companies like Shield AI um, in Australia, uh, companies like uh, Blue Bottle have been using, um, or OCS with the Blue Bottle UA USV, they've been using private money to do a lot of this development. So that's one thing is that there's opportunities here to take advantage of private investment that's already been made. And then in the foreign com com uh, companies, I think, um, you know, OCS, which does this Blue Bottle USV, which is you know, kind of like a sail drone, you know, but but maybe more optimized for the Australian environment. They 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 do some very good work, um, and um, I think you know Hanwha, as you mentioned, is doing some work with uh, a U.S. Uh, UAV company that um, is looking at like smaller you know UASs or in the Group Three, you know, Group Four, Group Three UAS size, so not quite MQ nine or, or MQ four sized, um, and then uh, clearly Ukraine. And some of the uh, Eastern European com companies have been doing a lot of work on uh, unmanned ground vehicles that can be used as decoys, uh, and then unmanned surface and undersea vehicles that are being used, um, particularly like this Magura you know, V5 uh, drone boat that they've been using to attack Russian ships in the Black Sea. So there's some definitely some technologies that we could harvest from overseas, but all of them are essentially what I would argue in this vehicle class, you know, the smaller or less expensive uh, unmanned vehicles, rather than the big platforms that are maybe multi-mission, uh, you know, transoceanic ones, which are unique to us. I mean, we're the only country, U.S. is the only country that's building something like an MUSV or an LUSV. Um, even the XLUV is much bigger than what other people are pursuing for un undersea vehicles. So we're kind of unique in that we're building these undersea unmanned platforms, rather, that can do multiple missions and have multiple uh, systems on them. And overseas, it's mostly these vehicle-sized ones. Um, one other company I'll mention, too, is uh, C2 Robotics in Australia is building this vehicle called the Speartooth, which is an un unmanned undersea vehicle, very long endurance, but pretty inexpensive. Um, and it's basically just a truck. It just carries a payload somewhere, and it's, it's considered expendable. It's a one-way trip. So there's a lot of really cool technologies being pursued overseas for unmanned systems, but they're on the, you know, inexpensive, um, you know, vehicle side rather than these big platforms. Well, we've been talking to Brian Clark, uh, senior fellow at Hudson Institute. Brian, thank you very much. Really appreciate your time. Um, we could spend another hour just talking <laughs> about this. This is a great report there. His report, along with Dan Pat, is Hedging Bets, Rethinking Force Design for a Post-Dominance Era. I would encourage folks to go to the Hudson website and check it out. Brian, thank you for joining us. We look forward to having you back again uh, as you guys have more to talk about. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate it. Well, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Maradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. The Cavishes podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is one of the largest artificial intelligence and machine learning federal contractors to the U.S. government. HII delivering the advantage. Be sure to follow us at Cavish Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Hey.